Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's Friday morning, September 10, about 8.30 in Washington, D.C. Time to gather around the roundtable again to look back at the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. Well, Joe Biden came out swinging on two fronts yesterday on COVID-19 with a number of new cases soaring. He basically declared war on those 80 million Americans who've refused to get vaccinated, ordering that all federal employees and contractors and healthcare workers get the vaccine or else. And on abortion, his attorney general filed a lawsuit against Texas and the draconian new anti-abortion law signed by Governor Greg Abbott. What's the political fallout from each? And speaking of political fallout, What's up for California Governor Gavin Newsom? With the help of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, can he survive the big recall election on September 14? And where's Donald Trump been in California? Here to wrap it all up for us at the end of the week, Amanda Becker. Back with us, Washington correspondent for 19th News. Hello, Amanda. It's good to be here, Bill. Scott Wong, congressional correspondent covering the Congress for The Hill. Hello, Scott. Hey, Bill. Good to have you back. And Hunter Walker, founder, reporter, and writer for The Uprising and a contributor to Rolling Stone. Hello, Hunter. Hey, how are you, Bill? All right, good. So yesterday, Joe Biden in the East Room, um, just making it very clear, he said he has lost patience with people who don't get vaccinated. They're dragging us all down. Here is a very stern President Biden. So tonight... I'm announcing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Some of the biggest companies are already requiring it. United Airlines, Disney, Tyson's Food, and even Fox News. Let me be blunt. My plan also takes on elected officials and states that are undermining you in these life-saving actions. Right now... Local school officials are trying to keep children safe while their governor picks a fight with them and even threatens their salaries or their jobs. Talk about bullying in schools. We're increasing the availability of new medicines recommended by real doctors, not conspiracy theorists. Tonight, I'm announcing that the TSA will double the fines on travelers that refuse to mask. And by the way, show some respect The anger you see on television toward flight attendants and others doing their job is wrong. It's ugly. So it was a wide-ranging new series of steps the president announced. Uh, We are not scientists here on the panel, uh, so we can't uh, really debate whether or not this is the right thing to do, but we can talk about the political implications. Uh, Hunter, a couple of months ago, the president said he didn't see any need for a a, uh, vaccine mandate. 
and now he's totally reversed himself. Why? Well, I mean, you know, I don't feel it's fair to say he's totally reversed himself because uh, let's be clear, this this is short of a mandate and, and it doesn't have teeth in a lot of ways. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you know, any scientist will tell you that sort of a weekly negative test is not actually, um, you know, a very secure measure. Uh, but he is taking this step because, as we've seen, you know, we have um, rising cases and deaths uh, months after the vaccine due to the fact a, a stubborn portion of the country is just not getting vaccinated. And, and you know, you can hear in Biden's voice he's clearly frustrated with that. Uh, but at the same time, despite all of the sturm and drang about this, I think it's important to note, you know, we are still short of a vaccine mandate. Um, and that testing loophole is quite a big one. Right. So, Scott, federal employees uh, include or I guess make, let me make that a question. Does that include members of Congress and all congressional staff? From my understanding, no, it does not. Uh, you know, as you know, Bill, members of Congress uh, are sort of kings of their own little fiefdoms, and right. each office operates on an individual basis. So, if a certain congressman, uh, let's say Jamie Raskin in my district, wants to impose uh, a, a mandate for all his employees in in the Capitol and back in the district to get vaccinated. Uh, that's his own prerogative. But right now, uh, you know, under under the congressional rules, there's no requirement. Now, there are certain uh, requirements like you must wear a mask on the House floor. You know, Nancy Pelosi imposes all sorts of rules and requirements for her own chamber. Uh, she, she's encouraged everyone. Almost everyone is, is vaccinated at this point uh, in terms of the lawmakers, except for a handful of holdouts. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this does now include federal contractors, which is significant, right? I mean, Biden's going after people's pocketbooks here, people who want to do business with the federal government, they've got to get vaccinated or, or show, uh, you know, or take a weekly test. Um, people who receive money from healthcare, uh, companies that receive money from Medicare and Medicaid, they also have to, uh, are, are covered under, uh, this requirement. So uh, Biden's flexing his muscle of the executive branch. He's doing everything possible, at least under his powers, to uh, to encourage people to get vaccinated. And I think you said it right at the top. Biden Biden came out swinging yesterday. He finally went on offense, and and Democrats and and progressive have have been begging him to do so. And this was the speech I think a lot of them had been waiting for. Amanda, we have to assume right that. The White House would not have put this together. Joe Biden would not have made this in statement unless they've done some polling on this that would show that politically this is the right thing to do, that he would have the support of the majority of Americans. Um, would you agree with that? Yes. I mean, I think polling is showing that people are reaching a fatigue level uh, you know, those of us who have been vaccinated, I think polling is showing that they're, you know, this has been going on for 18 months now and people are just getting tired and this pandemic is continuing. And I think that they they probably did pay attention to public public opinion on this before deciding to do it. Uh, and Hunter, it's sort of uh, to me, it's kind of a, a parallel to Donald Trump. I mean, most people agree that if Donald Trump had handled the pandemic differently, he could have been reelected or would have been reelected. 
So Joe Biden must know that it's the same thing for him, right? Everything depends on, no matter what else is going on, how he handles this pandemic. Is that right? I mean, since taking office, that's certainly the posture uh, he and his team have taken. They, they've, you know, framed themselves as totally focused on COVID. Um, you know, infrastructure and, and Afghanistan have sort of emerged recently, but but it's absolutely, you know, been his number one issue. And, and I mean, how could it not be? Um, and this, you know, persistence of the pandemic and and the rise of delta has you know sort of been out of his hands and in the hands of the you know unvaccinated minority um so you know his future to an extent is on the line i mean i guess you know if things continue this way we'll have to see how much you know people blame him um <laughs> for the right. unvaccinated i i'm interested in the question of when the private sector gets involved here um sort of as we saw with i think it was delta airlines and the 200 hundred dollar payment because mm -hmm. i know that you know sort of insurance charges for unvaccinated people um are absolutely you know more than than for those who've taken the shot and and i'm wondering if it may resolve itself that way at some point well as the president pointed out yesterday to a certain extent pr the private sector was ahead of the federal government, right? Many companies requiring their employees to be vaccinated, including, as he pointed out, Fox Fox News. Uh, uh, but uh, Scott, you mentioned on the uh, federal contractors and the economy. That's the other big factor here, right? Is the people who are unvaccinated are dragging down the economy, preventing you know businesses from reopening so fast. Uh, airline travel is down, and and so that was another thing that had to be prompting. Uh, the White House to step it up and, and go on the off offense. Yeah, I mean, from a political standpoint, uh, as well as an economic one, I mean, Biden does not want a third year of COVID to wreak havoc in this country. Um, you know, I think 3,000 people died of COVID yesterday, 2,000 uh, 2, the day before. Um, politically, Biden and the Democrats know that they're on the cusp of a really great economy. There's 10 million job openings, uh, you know, coupled with 8.5 million people who are unemployed. So they want to make those connections and have those unemployed people fill those job openings and uh, really supercharge this economy. And so if they can, if Democrats can make that happen in 2022, uh, you know, politically speaking, heading into a really, really tough midterm election year, at least uh, it gives you know, House and Senate Democrats a chance of holding on to to their chambers if they're in the midst of a booming economy. If things are the way they are a year from now and, and this thing just keeps on getting dragged out longer and longer, uh, I think they can kiss their majorities uh, goodbye. And, uh, you know, I think they just want to be in a position of either being able to defend the House and Senate or uh, to keep things close for for a future election, if they if they can come back. Uh, yeah, Amanda, I, I want to ask you about what the polls show, and then ask uh, you know Hunter, invite Hunter and Scott to jump in if you'd like to. But uh, we've seen Amanda the the president's polls have been from a that sort of honeymoon period, right, getting up close to sixty percent approval, now inching down. And the last one I looked this morning, it's either fifty fifty or maybe forty nine forty six. But clearly, the pandemic uh, and a little bit of Afghanistan certainly has cost Joe Biden in the polls. What I heard from him yesterday is basically damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, right? I mean, he knows 
he's dropping in the polls, but he's determined this is the right thing to do and he's going to do it come hell or high water. Yeah. I mean, I think what we heard yesterday was, uh, I think he's playing the slightly longer game when doing this. You know, he has been going down in polls. I do think, as you said, some of that is Afghanistan, not the pan- not the handling of the pandemic. Um, the pandemic, though, will be, I think, kind of what determines a month from now and two months from now kind of what those numbers look like for President Biden. And I think he's making a bet that, uh, you know, he might take a hit in the near term but will come out better if people feel as though we're emerging more quickly from this pandemic and the shutdowns because of what he's doing right now. Um, I mean, they got to get a handle on this before the midterms start in earnest, Mm -hmm. or I think that this could be really damaging for them. In the long run, Hunter, you think this will pay, uh, pay off? I, I I mean, I I think it could, (laughs) you know, again, (laughs) I, I, I don't, I, I don't think this is, you know, this is just applying to the federal workforce. It does have that loopholes. I, I don't think, frankly, this is enough to really put a dent in the sort of pandemic of the unvaccinated that we're seeing right now. Um, I just also want to expand on something uh, Amanda said. I think she's totally right that um, Afghanistan was, the Afghanistan exit was most directly tied to this dip in Biden's approval. Um, But we should note that, you know, polls consistently show a majority of people support his decision to withdraw uh, the issues he had there and, and the, the negative feedback seems to be, you know, due to the chaotic nature of the exit, uh, more so than the decision to withdraw itself. Right. Uh, and Scott, of course, there were Republican members of Congress yesterday who said this is tyranny. <laughs> Which <laughs> <laughs> They are the Republicans are apoplectic over these new Biden rules, and they're going to use this uh, as a as a campaign issue. Obviously, heading into the twenty twenty two midterms, Doug Ducey, the the uh, governor of Arizona, called Biden's move un American, which is a term we heard thrown out by a lot of Republicans and uh, uh, dictatorial. Uh, you mentioned tyranny. I mean, a lot of a lot of these uh, you know over the top words, but um, you know, I think. Once again, this is an issue that is going to end up in the court system. Uh, mm-hmm. Governors are already threatening to sue, and and uh, it's very likely that we'll see this issue and, and many of these uh, requirements and, and new uh, federal rules end up in the court system. Where obviously at the Supreme Court we have we have a six three majority in favor of conservatives. So uh, I think there's a still a long way to go uh, with this story. Uh, well, well, one thing that just blows my mind about all this, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just go. Like, I can't get over the fact that when it comes to the right, you know, the same people who were, you know, in sort of phase one of the pandemic, you know, agitating that we had to get back to work and had to get the economy moving, are now, you know, basically preventing that from happening normally. <laughs> Uh, anyone who searches for consistency in Washington uh, is, is soon disappointed, uh, as as we know. But in speaking of uh, uh, t- hot political issues uh, going into 2020, uh, the Republicans seem to have seized on another one in a big way, and it got the second big response from the administration yesterday with this announcement by uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland. Today... The Justice Department has filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas. Its basis is as follows. SB 8 bans nearly all abortions in the state after six weeks of pregnancy. 
and it further prohibits any effort to aid the doctors who provide pre-viability abortions or the women who seek them. The act is clearly unconstitutional under long-standing Supreme Court precedent. Texas does not dispute that its statute violates Supreme Court precedent. Instead, the statute includes an unprecedented scheme to, in the Chief Justice's words, quote, insulate the state from responsibility, close quote. So first on the policy, Amanda, this in effect is the reversal, the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the state of Texas, is it not? Yes. Uh, You know, Roe v. Wade protects uh, abortions up to the point of viability uh, at six weeks. And I think something really important to note here that I've uh, thankfully started seeing uh, talked about more in coverage and conversation is that six weeks is not a six-week-old fetus. Um, Six weeks is very, very early in a pregnancy. Uh, most, Most, if not the majority of women, would not even know they're pregnant yet. Uh, it is just a couple weeks after your first missed menstrual, menstrual cycle. And so this, in effect, uh, bans almost all abortions. Um, Scott, uh, could Congress head this off by codifying Roe v. Wade, which some people have called for, some members of Congress have called for? Do you see that happening? I, I think the Speaker of the House has called for it. Uh, obviously, uh, a, a um, an ally of of the Roe v. Wade decision throughout her entire career, and um, you know the and the House I think intends to to hold that vote. Um, the problem, of course, is that in order for something to become law, it's got to pass two chambers, as you understand, Bill. And um, I think they're gonna they would run into some real problems. Uh, in in the Senate uh, with that, where they would need 60 votes. Uh, Certainly Republicans are not going to join Democrats in in passing that. So that becomes more of of a messaging bill in the House than anything that could actually um, reach President Biden's desk. Uh, Yeah, it runs into a problem in the Senate by the name of Joe Manchin, uh, among others. Uh, So Hunter, let's get back to the, again, where we're suited, I guess, to to, uh, opine, and that's on the politics of it. This certainly is going to require in 2022, every Republican running for office uh, to speak out and defend this Texas law. Greg Abbott, that, for example, with no, no exception for rape. So the governor himself was asked this yesterday. uh, Mm -hmm. And um, here's how he thinks governor, Republicans should respond. Here's his attempt to say, no problem here. Bill, why force a rape or incest victim to carry a pregnancy to term? Uh, it doesn't require that at all because uh, obviously uh, it provides uh, at least six weeks uh, for a person uh, to be able to uh, get an abortion. And so, for one, it doesn't provide that. That said, however, let's make something very clear rape is a crime, and Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas. There you go, Hunter. He's going to go out and lasso them all. By the way, I checked last year, there were almost 15,000 reported cases of rape in Texas. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've heard from people in Texas, there's there's a backlog um, of processing even the rape kits that they do have. So this is not exactly a place where they've, you know, have a stellar record of, of 
dealing with the problem of, of rape and sexual assault. And, and now he's essentially saying, uh, to borrow a bit of a Trump parlance, he's going he's gonna to shut that whole thing down. Um, you know, I think what this most- is a problem for Republicans, right? They've chosen to run on this, basically. Well, you know, I, I know Republicans, um, you know, one in particular I'm thinking of who literally thought that, you know, almost in a, the way Karl Rove used gay marriage, uh, doing an abortion referendum would be good politics um, for them in 2020. Obviously, uh, that person's strategy did not take hold. But I think, you know, there are people within the GOP who are pretty excited about embracing this. Um, and and that's part of why we're also seeing other states, um, you know, make copycat uh, rules to Texas's and and you know trying to trying to do this as well. So it, it does seem like a fight they're eager to have. Well, I, I want to push back on that a little bit. Um, Amanda, help me out. So Republicans could run on the economy. They could say we haven't created enough new jobs. They could run on Afghanistan. It was such a mess getting out. We should have kept some troops there. Uh, they could run on a president who maybe hasn't caught fire. Uh, whatever they've chosen to run on overturning Roe v. Wade, first at the state level, and then, of course, in this Trump Supreme Court. How is that good politics? Well, I I want to push back on the idea that they've chosen to run on this. I mean, this, okay. is, this is something that Governor Abbott has done. And again, I would like to point out just from that clip, and we ran a story at the 19th to this effect the other day, Governor Abbott does not know how pregnancy works based on what he's saying. Um I think that this is very tricky. And I actually, on a national level, was noticing over the past week how quiet some Republicans are about what is going on. Because Roe v. Wade has been viewed as settled law. The majority of Americans support it and think it should stay that way. Uh, even people who have issues with other, you know, abor- some types of abortions think that they should be uh, legal, um, and you know, especially in cases of rape or incest and stuff like that. And I would not be shocked um, if we do see votes even on the Senate side. And I think that will be really interesting because you have a group of moderate senators. I'm thinking of Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, people like that, who are. Pro, still pro-choice Republicans. And I think that uh, they might at some point have to go on the record to that effect uh, in Congress. And I'm not sure that all Republicans think this is a winning issue for them to run on next year. There has been silence, certainly, on the part of, uh, of a lot of Republicans. Um, I, uh, I think they may rue the day. Um, and by, by the way, silence on part of maybe some members of Congress. But as Hunter pointed out, I think at least seven Republican governors have said they're going to introduce the same legislation uh, in their red states. Before we take a break, uh, a couple of times, the word Afghanistan has been mentioned. Um, I just want to throw out that question. Whatever happened to Afghanistan? (laughs) Hunter's not on the front page anymore, Hunter. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say I'm surprised, but, you know, essentially we had this 20-year war uh, I think about 6,000 Americans died, over 200,000 people total. Um, and it had really faded from the headlines and the consciousness prior to this withdrawal. Uh, there was a blip of attention about the exit. Um, and I should note that a lot of people who, you know, 
railed against the death and chaos that occurred, you know, during that week or so were pretty silent about the death and chaos that was occurring there uh, for decades. But it, it's just kind of dropped out of the headlines. Um, you know, I think the next political football we might see coming from this is sort of questions about the refugees. You saw Tucker mm-hmm. Carlson and others sort of begin to, you know, yeah raise alarm bells about these people being brought into the country. And I think certainly if we see, you know, someone who was part of that movement um, end up getting involved in something negative, um, that would be a major storyline. But other than that, I think, you know, America has not wanted to talk about Afghanistan for a long time. And it's, it's sort of retreated back to where it was, which is, you know, very not top of mind. Uh, Again, Amanda, it looks like here again, Joe Biden gambled that the American people basically were ready to get out. And um, no matter how much flack he took by getting out, he just said, yep, damn it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be uh, out in America this week. I went to Massachusetts <laughs> uh, to see Senator Elizabeth Warren. And I think, you know, it's just it's always a good gauge of what voters are paying attention to and concerned about and focused on. And that's why I love leaving Washington when you go to these town halls and listen to their Q&As. Over an hour-long town hall in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, two nights ago, she took 10 questions. And I pulled out my uh, notes from that before we started talking this morning. Uh, None of them were about Afghanistan. So, I mean, obviously, that's not a completely representative representative group, because those are not going to include a lot of Republicans, people showing at showing up at an Elizabeth Warren town hall. But I do think memory is short, especially on foreign policy with American voters. And I do think he was making another bet that he was going to take a near term hit, but that it would stabilize and go back up um, as as the months go on in plenty of time uh, before the midterms. Uh, So let me ask you before I turn to Scott, how many questions were there on the uh, bipartisan one and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill? Uh, there were no. So I'm not sure that voters. <laughs> there were multiple questions on the the uh, the second the second piece of it, which is now first the the larger caregiving yeah. package, the Build Back yeah. Better agenda. There were multiple questions on that. All right. So there you go, Scott. <laughs> uh, this is re- this is the sausage factory, right, between these two bills and, and all the talk going on. What Pull, pull the rabbit out of the hat. What do you think is going to happen? Are both of these bills going to get passed at some level? Well, I think uh, Democrats don't really have a choice here. Uh, this is the entire Biden agenda. And if you go back again and, and think about where we are in in the election cycle, uh, you know, history shows that when a party is in control of everything, they only really have that first year to get anything significant done. And so they have a very narrow window here. Uh, nothing major is going to pass in, in 2022 once we're in the swing of the of the midterms. Yeah. And so Democrats in the House and Senate who have very, very slim majorities, uh, almost, you know, the smallest of majorities know that they they have to get something done. And, you know, based on on how the moderates and the progressives are posturing, threatening to tank everything if they don't get their way, uh, you know, 
the leadership and, and Joe Biden are, are walking a, a tight tightrope. And um, but I think if you ask every Democrat, um, they will all say that they cannot afford to do nothing here. And so I think at the end of the day, given that you do have very experienced leaders in, in uh, Pelosi and, and Biden and uh, Chuck Schumer, who have been around the block a couple times and, and know their ways around the Capitol and how things work and how you get deals done, um, you know, I think I think you have to bet on the side that they will accomplish something and come together as a party or a or else face uh, peril in, in the 2022 midterms. Yep, I read it the same way. So we got a great panel this morning with Amanda Becker from 19th News, Scott Wong from The Hill, Hunter Walker from The Uprising. Uh, touched on a lot so far, but still a couple of other issues we want to get to before we get to our favorite stories of the week. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with uh, today's roundtable. And the Bill Press Pod brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those good men and women of the Teamsters Union, members of America's largest and most diverse of all of our labor unions under the leadership, longtime leadership of President Jim Hoffa. They are one and a half million strong, representing every segment of the American workforce, from uh, vegetable workers in California to construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, bakery workers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters, thank them for their good work and for their support of the Bill Press Pond. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Back with today's roundtable, wrapping up the news of the week. Amanda Becker joins us from 19th News, Scott Walker from The Hill, and Hunter Walker, Scott Wong from The Hill, and Hunter Walker from uh, The Uprising. So uh, the president is going to California Monday following uh, the lead of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, who was out there a few days ago, to stump for Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, here is why one of the reasons why I like Jen Psaki, the press secretary. She was asked 
what the hell is a president? Why the hell is he going to California? And she comes up with the obvious answer. Why uh, does he think it's important to go uh, to California to campaign for the governor at this point? Because the election is Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Because the election is Tuesday. Uh, Hunter, they're the kind of answers we like, right, in the White House briefing room. (laughs) But, you know, look, it it looks like Gavin Newsom is going to win. So why is Joe Biden making this special trip? You know, um, I I think first off, California, you know, is is a huge part of the country. It it, it doesn't get enough attention. Um, But also, I think, you know, this race went from being something that Newsom had pretty well in hand um, and and largely seemed to feature Caitlyn Jenner, uh, the reality TV star (laughs) as his biggest opponent. Um, In in more recent weeks, this conservative radio host, Larry Elder, the self-described, quote, sage of South Central, um, you know, did get some traction uh, out there and kind of kind of made this a bit of a more interesting race. Uh, I, I imagine Biden's Biden's visit reflects that. Uh, one really interesting thing about Elder is actually he was something of a mentor to um, President Trump's advisor Stephen Miller, um, who cut his <laughs> political teeth um, with appearances on Elder's radio broadcast, where he railed against the the diversity and what he saw as you know a, a negative progressive culture at his high school, Santa Monica High School, uh, right on the beach in the West Side, one of the absolute uh, most liberal places in California. So so Elder's an interesting guy, and I think he. he you know, uh, made this an interesting race. Uh, Amanda, one person who has not been seen and will not be seen in, or heard from in California is Donald Trump. Why do you think? I think if Donald Trump was talking about this election, this recall election a lot, or if he went to California or something like that, that would only energize voters to turn out. And I even, think even more. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of the strategy is that, uh, for on the Republican side in this recall is that this is a recall election. You know, this is not a presidential election. These are not, you know, I would, I don't know what turnout is going to be like, but typically it would be much lower than in a, you know, an election, a presidential election year. And I've seen more and more Democrats and voters frame this as if you do not like Donald Trump, you need to come out and vote in this election to make sure that Newsom stays. Um, And so I think if Trump got involved in this, it would actually work against Elder and some of the other Republicans. Uh, I might point out that later today, the, uh, the University of Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies is going to be releasing the final poll uh, in the um, in the recall before the election, which is on uh, September 14. The last poll from PPP showed, as Hunter pointed out, it went from being like a walk away from Gavin Newsom to a, to a pretty close, maybe three-point margin the latest PPP show, poll showed Gavin Newsom 58, uh, and the I'm sorry, those who would vote to against the recall 58, and those who would vote to recall Newsom 39. So it looks like it's really swung pretty um, start, starkly in Gavin's favor. Uh, one other issue: Scott Wong, September 18, a big rally on the United States Capitol lawn, people there to pro- to support the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Amazing. What's going on? Yeah. They're How calling they- it the Justice for J6, the Justice for January 6th rally. 
in support of uh, the insurrectionists who attacked the Capitol and many of whom remain behind bars as they await their uh, trials or sentencing. Uh, so far, it's, it's unclear if any members of Congress uh, on the Republican side will be in attendance. But because of what happened on January 6th, as we all know and all witnessed, uh, police and, and other th- authorities and congressional leadership is taking this very seriously. We don't quite know how large it's going to be. Um, but, you know, now there's it looks like they've made the decision to put some fencing up around the main Capitol building, not not um, among uh, the other House and Senate buildings, but around the central Capitol building, uh, which had, you know, created all sorts of, of uh, controversies, as you know, Bill, with, with the neighborhood and access oh, yeah. to some oh, yeah. of those public spaces. So we're back at, you know, dealing with the fence again. Uh, there are memos circulating in the law enforcement community, including with Capitol Police, about, uh, you know, the potential for violence. And so they learned their lessons, hopefully, from January 6th, where Capitol Police and other uh Authorities were not prepared and, and were caught flat-footed and didn't have a strategy. This time, it appears that they do. There's going to be uh, a briefing in, in the coming days. There already have been some briefings uh, for congressional leadership. And so um, they want to make sure they check all the boxes this time and have a game plan if anything should go awry. Hunter, I find I find it very difficult to get my arms around this. I mean, this is a rally in support of criminals, right? This is a rally in support of terrorists. This is a rally in support of an armed mob that stormed the Capitol and threatened to kill members of Congress and to lynch the vice president of the United States. And they're allowing it on the Capitol grounds. What the hell is going on? I mean, this isn't just this rally. You know, uh, this has become a acceptable uh, position uh, for some in the Republican Party, and 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 I'm only hesitating there because, as you you know, elided, it's it's just so shocking um, that you know, mere mere months after this this violent attack on the Congress, um, it would be anything other than condemned. But we're seeing, I mean, Madison Cawthorn a, a week or so ago, the, the um, he referred to these people as quote unquote political prisoners. Um, and when when a person at this um, you know event in North Carolina said to him, you know, when are you going to call us down to Washington again? He said, we're working on that. Um, and he's not the only one. I mean, uh, I've written several times on 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 the uprising, my newsletter uh, about how Paul Gosar has just um, stunningly defended the rioters. Um, you know, obviously Andy Biggs. Um, you know, has been part of that as well. Um, people are referring to Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was um, shot by law enforcement while trying to enter, um, you know, a chamber where, where members of Congress and the vice president were. Um, they've they've martyred her essentially, and and you know, it it, it is shocking to me. Um, you know, I, I really can't believe that we saw this violent criminal attack on our country, and we are now seeing. Um, elected officials and others essentially celebrate it. Um, But one thing that a lot of the defenders of January 6th have in common is that they also have um, ties to the event. Uh, you know, in the case of Gosar, uh, he was one of the scheduled speakers at the uh, Wild Protest, which was one of the main rallies that drew people to the Capitol that day. Um, 
you know, he's he's actually been referred to by some of the organizers as someone who helped plan it. Um, so, you know, I, I think it is shocking. But on the other hand, these are people who, you know, were encouraging and were part of this attack from before it occurred. And now they're, you know, either fomenting another one or celebrating the one that took place in its aftermath. Uh, well, let's hope that the security is uh, well prepared and well in place, and there's no violence this time around. I don't think this rally, I can't believe they even allowed this rally to be scheduled at at that sacred spot. Um, at any rate, uh, I won't let you go before I just want to ask each of you a very quick question. We've saved the most important issue to the last one. Of course, yesterday was the release, the announcement of the new sunglasses put out by Facebook which enable you to take photos and videos and listen to music from your sunglasses. You can video the person you're talking to without even telling them how many of you have ordered your uh, Facebook sunglasses. <laughs> Come on, Absolute, Hunter. Absolutely not, Bill. I will not be ordering the sunglasses. Neither will I. Hunter, anybody? <laughs> you know, I initially crapped on this announcement uh, like most people just because of, you know, what a horrible track record Facebook has with yeah. uh, our, our society, with our data. Um, you know, Zuckerberg is essentially saying, like, give me your eyes. Let me install small cameras all over the place. <laughs> what right. go wrong? Uh, at the same time, as I thought about it, these cameras, which which have a small LED light that lets people know you're recording, that is very easy to well, up. They could be yeah. pretty awesome for journalism if you want to do some forty-eight <laughs> hour style, uh, uh, you know, uh, hidden camera uh, stuff or live streaming. But that being said, I am not remotely interested in giving Facebook money uh, or or letting them more into my life than they are. So, as fun that, as it could be to live stream off these things and sneak up on people, I am not going to be adding to that. So Scott, this could be, just be what you need for Congress, right? You, you, <laughs> you run down the run down these members in the hall. You just stand there. Don't even take notes. You just. <laughs> it would probably make my job easier. Although I, I just have to say it's a little bit creepy. But um, <laughs> I don't think I'll be ordering my pair. Uh, it is indeed creepy. All right. Well, uh, as we round up here, uh, as always, there's one story during the week that uh, of all the things we're talking about and all the things we're writing about and covering that catches your attention. Uh, Amanda, start us off with your favorite story of the week. Uh, I am opening to find the title right now. It was okay. to me just an absolute standout and I, I just pulled it up. It's called The Other Afghan Women and it was in the New Yorker, um, the sem- September 13th issue um, by Anand Gopal. And it he spent some time, uh, a lot of time in the countryside of Afghanistan talking to women outside uh, Kabul to just hear their thoughts kind of on what this withdrawal meant for them and what situation this leaves them in. And I thought it was not only really illuminating in terms of what the women of Afghanistan are thinking right now, but also just really drives home um, that the United States didn't uh, seemed to know what it was doing for the past 20 years there to a certain extent. And, you know, I, it, this just to me was the absolute best story, not only that I've read this week, but in quite a while. It was a very powerful story. Very powerful. Scott Wong, what caught your attention? Yeah, you know, 
for myself, like may, maybe many of you, I've been watching a lot of the documentaries on, on TV this week about the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 mm. attacks. And I just wanted to tell a quick story about where I was on, on 9-11. I was actually living abroad in Japan, teaching English in, in a really rural mountain village where I was the only foreigner. And, uh, you know, I, I watched on the news that night, uh, you know, the, the towers falling um, and went to work the next morning at my junior high school where I was teaching. And, and it was just a very strange experience because I couldn't I couldn't reach any family members. Uh, and my fellow teachers were carrying on as if nothing had happened because I was mm. in, in a foreign country in a really remote village. And so it was a very different experience being abroad uh, on 9-11, a very isolating experience and, and sort of the opposite, I think, of maybe what what many folks back in the States were experiencing, this sort of collective uh, experience where you could share and talk about things with your, with your fellow uh, Americans. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I thought I'd just bring that perspective uh, to the table. And, and I'm sure there were thousands of Americans living all around the world at that time who, who perhaps experienced that day like I did. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Scott, and a good reminder uh, about tomorrow, uh, September 11th. Hard to believe it's been 20 years. Hunter Walker, help well, us out. Uh, you know, Lushana Tova, everybody, and happy Jewish New yes. Year 5782. Um, and in <laughs> honor of the holiday, and also just because I'm obsessed with this, uh, my favorite story of the week was the end for now of the odyssey of Zebulon Simontov, Afghanistan's last Jew. Um, and, yes. and, you know, this guy is just, you know, it's a pretty wild one. He, he maintained and lived in the country's last synagogue. Um, and for a long time, he had a feud with the only other Jew in the country. Uh, there was a large <laughs> Jewish population in Afghanistan that has dwindled over the years, um, you know, due to some, <laughs> some anti-Jewish measures. And because of this, he had a whole international community trying to rescue him and take him out before the Taliban came in. He actually refused to leave, um, in part because he was demanding payment. And also he was worried that uh, his wife had gotten out of the country ahead of him. And basically he owed her money in a divorce. Uh, all of that seems to have been settled. Uh, my brother Zebulon has has taken a bus, uh, crossed yep. Taliban checkpoints, and made it out of Afghanistan. So you know uh, uh, that that is just nachas uh, for the whole Jewish community. There, we're very happy for for uh, Mr. Simontov. Right, I saw that story. It's a wonderful story, and we're glad he he got out. Well, you know, um, as a former seminarian, I am always looking for uh, stories about. I I take particularly delight in stories that show hypocrisy inside the institutional Catholic Church. So <laughs> my favorite story this week comes out of Spain, Catalonia, Spain, where Bishop Javier Novel, who happens to be the youngest, was the youngest bishop in Spain, uh, his specialty was performing exorcisms to drive the devil out of people. They still do this in Spain. And he performed hundreds and hundreds of these. But in that process, he happened to meet a writer of exotic, I'm sorry, erotic novels by the name of Sylvia Cabal. He fell in love with her and he quit the church and married her. So uh, Bishop Novell was very good at casting the devil out of everybody, but he was unable to cast the devil out of himself, it seems. So I found that story just absolutely uh, delightful. By the way, the Pope 
heard that he was thinking of leaving the church, and he suggested that the Pope send somebody to conduct an exorcism on the bishop, and the bishop said, uh, no thanks, I'm leaving, I'm getting married. So there you go. That's it for today's roundtable. Thank you so much, Hunter Walker from The Uprising. Thank you, Scott Wong from The Hill. Thank you, Amanda Becker from 19th News. As has been mentioned, tomorrow is September 11, the 20th anniversary of that dreadful day. So please uh, not only take time out to remember where you were on September 11, but take time out to say a prayer for those who lost their lives on that tragic day. Uh, And uh, say a word of prayer and a word of thanks also again to the first responders who ran into the smoke and flames to save lives and became and showed themselves true American heroes. Next week, we're going to be starting a very special series here on the Bill Press Pod, a three-part series called Our Democracy in Peril, where we're going to be looking at the insurrection of January 6th in depth, what led up to it, what happened that day, Donald Trump's role in it, and what should and could happen next. Our Democracy in Peril, starting next Tuesday on the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, have a good weekend. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. 